Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I am your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our fourth episode of the Nauticast, entitled This Is Her Place, an analysis of A Game of Thrones, Eddard 1, our very first point of view chapter from the main character of A Game of Thrones. And just as a quick spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we will be talking about all the published books, that is all five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, the histories, interviews with George R. R. Barton, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones television show, anything and everything. So thank you to everyone who has been listening along to our podcast. Uh, we appreciate all the comments and feedback we've received so far. Uh, for this episode, we, will, we won't be talking about anyone specifically who's said some nice things about us, although we will get back to them because I know some people are still listening through the, through the Danny episode, and there's been a lot of great discussion about that. But we did want to talk a little bit before we actually get into this editor chapter about some updates we got from George R. R. Martin on what's in store next for Song of Ice and Fire. In a few comments on his not a blog, which is his actual blog, uh, don't let the name confuse you, uh, George R. R. Martin said that Fire and Blood Volume 1, that is his first volume in the Targaryen history that he's had planned for several years now, will be published this year. So it's going to be coming in 2018, most likely probably towards the winter holiday time frame come, come 2018 in advance of, of, of the holidays. So... He also said that this book would come out before The Winds of Winter. So we're probably looking now at The Winds of Winter coming out at, in 2019, unfortunately, at, at the earliest. Um, for those of you guys who don't know, Fire and Blood Volume 1 is the leftover material. A lot of it is the leftover material from The World of Ice and Fire. It covers the Targaryen kings from Aegon I to Aegon III. Um, you saw some of it in The World of Ice and Fire, but a lot of it was condensed and edited down. This is now George's complete um, version of this uh, history that he's he's been writing now for for several years. Um, should be interesting. Um, history is not necessarily my forte, but I do enjoy some of the stuff in the world of Ice and Fire, and I think I'll be picking up Fire and Blood Volume One, obviously. And you know, we'll we'll see where it, uh, where Martin takes it and what what. Um, things he has in store for us come that that little history volume absolutely i can't say i wouldn't prefer winds of winter first but it's still going to be interesting material i think i'll have interesting reflections and parallels to the main story because there was a lot of that in world of ice and fire and in the duncan egg series martin clearly likes kind of seeding and echoing ideas from a song of ice and fire in the other material he writes in this universe so i'm going to look forward to you know Picking apart its, like, I'm looking forward to being a vulture on this book and scavenging the useful bits <laughs> from its bones uh, in a desperate act of consumption. So I'm looking forward to that. Do you have like a favorite Targary, early Targaryen king that you're looking forward to? A chapter that you're looking forward to reading from from the Fire and Blood Volume One? That's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm curious about the end of Viserys One's reign. I mean, that's that's pretty well covered in the novellas. But I'm curious about that moment of political transition. That's when the Targaryens were at their height. Uh, Aegon III is a really interesting character we don't know much about, so I'm looking forward to getting more of an insight into his overall decision-making process for sure. What about you? I think uh, for me, it, it's Aegon III is the one I'm most looking forward to. And the reason why it's Aegon III is not because of Aegon III, even though he's tangentially interesting, I guess, to me, but is because of when Craig and Stark comes to 
King's Landing and becomes the one day hand and cleans house of all of the uh, the leftovers from the Dance of the Dragons, lops off a bunch of heads, pop smoke, and then rolls back to Winterfell just after one day of being the Hand of the King. So that's 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 mostly what I'm looking forward to. Although, I mean, I'm sure I'll enjoy the Jaehaerys, the first chapter. I mean, if you guys have read The World of Ice and Fire, which I'm assuming many of you have, the Jaehaerys, the first chapter, is not incredibly detailed. And Martin has talked about how he needs to write a Jaehaerys, the first chapter. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing the old king, the wise old king, and and more of his reign, because he was probably, if not one of the best, he is the best Targaryen king that we have in, in, in the histories that we have so far. Yeah, I don't think it's especially close. I mean, he's definitely supposed to be the model for how to do it right. And there's, you know, there's an irony in that it's easier to flesh out the bad or at least dramatic kings than it is the good stable kings, because True. someone like uh, Magor... Uh, or Egan the Fourth, or the Mad King, they give you more stories to work with. Uh, Jaehaerys, you know, they're, I mean, obviously maintaining peace and prosperity for as long as he did took constant work. It's, it's, there isn't the dramatic rising tide that you can sculpt stories out of the way you have with the Dance of the Dragons, for example. True. So he has to, but it's, it's still important and it's still, it carries weight. I think a lot of people kind of look at Jaehaerys one and start to look for lessons about what Martin thinks a leader should be overall and how that should be applied to John or Danny. So it still carries some weight in terms of what his archetype of a good leader actually looks like. Because as we've mentioned in the podcast before, it's something he talks a lot about when he's talking about Aragorn and Lord of the Rings uh, or, you know, naming a book a Clash of Kings and having it mostly be about differing styles of leadership. And, you know, it's something he's clearly putting a lot of thought into. And Jaehaerys the one... From Jaehaerys the one, Jaehaerys the first. From what, <laughs> my wires crossed. From what we know of him, uh, Jaehaerys the first is the closest thing to George Martin's model of great leadership, other than maybe Baylor Breakspear, but we'll never know. So yeah, I am interested in seeing him fleshed out for sure. And then hopefully we'll get a bit more of uh, Septon Barth, who is definitely one of those awesome characters. That is a uh, not a primary character, but a very interesting secondary character that we get a whole lot of. Uh, not a whole lot, but enough information about in the main series that we're all interested in finding out more about him, uh, among others. But enough about Fire and Blood for the moment. I'm sure we'll be covering that a bit more in depth when the book is released itself. Um, something more important than Fire and Blood Volume 1 actually came out just last week as of this recording. And that is that Emmett released a brand new essay in that Theon series. So tell us a little bit about this this essay on Reek or Theon and what drove you to write it and your difficulties or things that you really gravitated towards in, in writing that essay. Well, thanks, Jeff. Well, Ned's calling. We'll get to him soon. But <laughs> yeah, it's I've been writing a, a series on Theon's chapters in Dance, which is one of my favorite parts of the whole story. I think it's an incredibly rich and well-constructed and really risky arc, the way he, the position he put Theon in, what he was asking of us to relate to him compared to how we related to him before. And just the overall journey he goes through, I think, is, is really perfectly constructed. And so I'm just writing one essay per chapter on how that's being done. And I just released an essay on the first chapter, which is the one in the Dreadfort. And that one, it's, that one I was, it was the one I knew was going to be hardest to write about uh, because it's the one in which the least happens. It's really not plot oriented at all. Later on in his chapters, they go to Moat Caelan, Roose and his army comes north, and then they go to Barriton and Winterfell, and they're preparing to fight Stannis, and Barbary Dustin is doing stuff, and people are getting murdered, and there's a lot of plot you can chew on. But the first chapter is really just about Theon's mental state and how he got there. And 
I was, I was just writing about just the, the sheer shock of falling into that headstake, given how long we've been away from Theon and what we knew of him before, and how Martin was taking a character he encouraged us to hate and then showing us what like him, quote-unquote, getting what he deserved actually looked like and how brutal it was and how it didn't feel like righteous comeuppance. It just felt like he'd been broken and it was just this wretched, horrible, sad thing that has happened and how he's trying to reassemble his identity because, I mean, that's the, the core of that story is him thinking of himself as Reek and that Ramsey has forced his name on him and he can't even think the name Theon. And he doesn't want to, in part because of what he did, and Ramsey has convinced him that this is his rightful place. And just how he gradually starts to break away from that is really what I love about that story. So, but but this will be a, this chapter is just about the kind of the hell he's in at the Dreadfort. So it's just writing about just the really the brutal shock of it and how that works on multiple levels and how well that's written and how well all the other characters in that story kind of interact with him and how that affects his overall sense of identity because everyone just can't believe that it's him in that first chapter that this is like smiling always smiling one character says of of the man that was once Theon Greyjoy and now his teeth are broken and he's just a completely different person so yeah that's been it's it's heavy stuff and it's, it's stuff people have talked a lot about in the fandom before so it's nothing new but it's it's really such good writing that I think it's always worth revisiting and talking about so more more essays to come yeah, it, it was really um, a fabulous essay, and I really gravitated toward the comparison you made between Theon and Cersei, in that Cersei, you will get her Walk of Atonement in the end of A Dance with Dragons, and it's something that readers are like, oh man, yeah, let's, she needs to be punished for, for what she did, all the, all the terrible stuff that she did, but when you actually get that, when she when she's finally punished, that Martin subverts that catharsis that we feel over her punishment by by breaking her in, in similar ways that he does with Theon in, in the Reek chapter. And the the thing is, is that, yeah, there's not a lot plot-wise that happens. Sure, we get um, the uh, the Umber guy and the, and the Karsark guy uh, that are there, and we get hints that the, that that the, the Boltons have some sort of use in store for, for Theon, but I think it's a difference between the idea of plot and character. And that plot is the the benchmarks that you're hitting as you're progressing in a narrative to advance the advance the story. But here you're getting a lot of character on Theon and understanding who Theon is as Reek and the broken nature that he is coming back into the narrative after being gone for two books. We get that brief mention in A Storm of Swords about that Theon is being flayed in the Dreadfort, and you have Roose Bolton bringing um, a bit of Theon's skin to the Red Wedding, uh, or rather to the to the twins, where the, right before the Red Wedding, he shows Catelyn. Um, but we don't hear about Theon until, or we don't see Theon until this chapter in A Dance with Dragons. And, you know, like you, I think you had mentioned this in your essay, I had no idea who Reek was, right? When I first opened this essay, first opened A Dance with Dragons, was reading through, I was like, who in the world is Reek? And it, it really didn't dawn on me until like the very end of the chapter when they're talking about the smiling guy and they're talking and he's trying to desperately trying not to say his name and the name Greyjoy is brought up by some of the other characters in, in the um, in the chapter itself. But yeah, it's a, it's a terrific essay. And, you know, if anyone wants to read it, and I'm sure that everyone will or they should, um, we'll link it in the show notes. So feel free to check it out there. And if you do not read it, I will personally block you and I will no longer speak with you ever again. So thanks for writing that. It was awesome. My pleasure. And yes, Jeff brings the pain, so don't cross him. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So all of that out of the way, let's turn 
our attention now to our very first point of view from the main character in a, in a Game of Thrones. It's something that Emmett's going to talk about, why he's the main character in Game of Thrones. And as always, Emmett, take us away on Eddard One. So now we have the king arriving at Winterfell with all his court. Uh, we have Ned bringing him down to the crypts. We have their conversation about the, the lady they both lost. And as Jeff says, we have arrived at the POV of Lord Eddard Stark, our protagonist for the book, but not for the whole series. And Ned's death uh, defines the conversation around his character. I mean, not just because it removed him from the stage, but because it's such a defining moment for the series and because it's such a, has a, it has such a huge impact in universe. And there's this retroactively mournful tone now to going back to Ned's chapters. You can see the coffin forming around him as the story swallows him up. And that's fitting because so much of Ned's characterization is about the shadow cast by time. And that applies to both his past with his sister that comes up strongly in this chapter and applies to his future when we see in A Dance with Dragons how his memory and his legacy is inspiring everyone from Alice Karstark to Wyla Manderley to Big Bucket Wool to put themselves on the line in his name. And uh, this is, you know, Ned Stark is a man really haunted by both his, his past and, and the weight of his future. And that's always, always impinging on his present. And that's something that's emphasized throughout this chapter. Uh, the opening words of his first POV chapter are about the, the difference between the, the man Robert was, the man who was muscled like a maiden's fantasy, as Ned says, <laughs> and the, the, the king who has, he has become. He's become uh, overweight and he has difficulty moving. And clearly the, his partying lifestyles had this huge terrible impact on him and that fits into Ned's overall story uh, that's all about these the weight of the past and the weight of the people he's lost and you know Ned and Robert go down to Lyanna's crypts and it's become so clear that neither of them have really aged since that moment they're both kind of trapped in the past and for them the false spring is always there and Robert hasn't become king the war hadn't happened and as Ned says in Catalan's next chapter this cup did not pass to them that you know, so much of this of this chapter is about you know regret and and sadness and loss, and this is this is the context in which we meet the king and his court. Like the opening paragraph is, they all came streaming through Winterfell gates, and there's the trumpets and the banners. But the core of the chapter is about this really mournful reality about what these people have left behind and how much it's haunting them to the present day. And so you can, in that regard, you can see Ned's death coming even though the book sets him up as the protagonist and as someone who's leading the charge in the story, all these the, the themes and moods of this chapter point towards uh, a sad, sorrowful end. And, you know, if you, if you zoom out from Ned Stark as a whole, you realize he's not the protagonist, but he's the he's a protagonist's mentor. He's the father figure to the heroes, and it's not surprising that the hero's parents die, really, in any number of genres. But just by tweaking the frame a little bit and by presenting him as the lead character in this book... And as the as the prime mover in the kind of detective story when we get to King's Landing, Martin managed to make a shock out of what could have been an inevitability and kind of arguably made his name in this story on that twist. And it's something that works so well because it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's, you can see it coming in this first chapter when Ned and Robert walk down into that crypt and Ned feels the cold setting in uh, that winter is coming ultimately for him by book's end. And that's what... That's what really resonates for me coming back, coming back to this chapter is it's so, it's just, it's, it's pregnant with emotions. It's, it's, it's so full of weight for both these men and what they've lost and what's coming for them both. 
that is, you know, as, as obviously mournful as it is on first read, I think it only gains from rereads, this chapter in particular, when you know what's coming for them, because it feels like them quite literally walking into the grave. It really does. And it's, it's a, the mournful tone also works in concert with that realistic framework that Martin wants to ground his fantasy in. You have this idea, as Emma talked about, of Robert muscled like a man's fantasy in Ned's memory, which is true because Robert was a incredibly strong, tall guy. They talk about how he was six and a half feet tall, but when he wore his antlered helm, he would he looked like a giant. But when the man arrives in Winterfell, in Winterfell, fifteen years after the end of Robert's rebellion, he's a changed man. He's been he's let his pleasures get to him. He's overweight. He's breathing heavy. He's, you know, they, they talk about how his jowls are sagging and he's, he's grown a beard in order to cover up his double chin. And you have that really great uh, imagery that works to set a realistic framework for the world that Martin is, is inhabiting. These Robert is not a square-jawed hero walking into, into Winterfell. He is a man who's been broken by the kingship that he fought for 15 years ago. And I think that's a really great and wonderful way that Martin uh, works this chapter in. And one of the other things I really love about this chapter too, is that it's almost like a stage, right? So you have the stage of Winterfell and you have the main characters coming on, but you also have the supporting cast of a Game of Thrones also coming onto the stage. You got characters like Jamie, you have Sandor Clegane, you got Robert and you have Cersei. And then you also have another major point of view, which is only just, he's only mentioned very briefly. And then we get a chapter of his later on, which is Tyrion. Tyrion comes through the gates of Winterfell, which is a little bit of a change from the TV show where Tyrion does not come through the game, come through the gates of Winterfell. In fact, he's in a brothel in the uh, first episode of a Game of Thrones, uh, first episode of Game of Thrones. So they also bring him in in this chapter itself. Um, my preference is I actually like the show's version of introducing Tyrion because it helps us establish his character in a better way than him just kind of coming through the gates of Winterfell. Um, the, the thing that is really, I really love about this chapter, though, beyond just introducing characters and establishing a realistic framework for fantasy, is the beautiful and tragic pathos that George brings into um, Ned and Robert's descriptions of about Lyanna. And Emmett will talk about more in depth about this a little bit later on, but there's so many really great lines about um, what Ned is thinking of Robert is saying, stuff like Ned loved her with all his heart and Robert saying she was more beautiful than that. Damn it, Ned, did you have to bury her in a place like this? She deserved more than darkness. She should be on a hill somewhere under a fruit tree with the sun and clouds above her and the rain to wash her clean. And that that really, um, it, it struck me in this reread, um, the, the pathos of it and how moving it is to have that both two men mourning a woman who's now been dead for 15 years. And it, it really kind of drives home, again, the, the realism of the series, but also underlines the romanticism, too. You have two men who are mourning a, a woman long dead, and it's, it's real, too. It's also that romanticism that Martin likes to build into A Song of Ice and Fire, and it comes out really strongly here in this chapter. Absolutely, and he's, he's showing how that romanticism has kind of curdled and faded over time. You know, Robert was the dream of a perfect king, and this is kind of the lived reality of how he's dealing with that years down the line. Uh, you know, he had this 
idealized dream of, of who Leanna was that really didn't match, as we'll learn later in chapters, who she was and how she felt about Robert. And it's... They're just living in the past in this way that matches up with Viserys. I think you see a strong parallel between mm-hmm. Danny one in this chapter following each other's heels, where Viserys is just lost in this dream of what he had to give up, what he had to flee in Westeros, and that's made him so delusional and dangerous in the present day. And Robert, you know, while he's certainly not as personally monstrous as Viserys, I would argue, although he certainly has his moments, he's yes. he's defined in large part by his utter hatred of the Targaryens. And, you know, we learn that he had no compunctions whatsoever about the murder of Rhaegar's children. And he is will later order the deaths of both Danny and Viserys. And so that, that, again, that romanticism has curdled and led to this, you know, what was once his great love and his great passion and his great lust for life, his joie de vivre, has just <laughs> melted away and he's left this kind of bitter, hateful man who is, you know, Robert at his worst reflects Robert at his best. It's all his best traits that have all rotted and have all kind of turned in on themselves. And he's not, it's, he's still recognizably the same man, but everything has gone wrong. And that's what Ned is responding to in this chapter and feels so sad about. And yeah, and you can see that with Viserys too, that whatever, not Viserys, Viserys three, ironically enough, you can see that with Viserys as well. <laughs> that whatever whatever hope and chance Viserys had to be a, a better person than his dad, it has just been stripped away from him in the years he's been on the run, the years he's been obsessing. It's it's this great terrible irony that you know Viserys loathes Robert for taking his crown so much, and yet Robert doesn't like the crown and doesn't want to keep the crown, and will later confess to Ned that he's thought about giving up the crown, and running away. Um, and as, as it's something that ripples down the line when Stannis says that he never wanted the crown and doesn't understand why his brothers wanted it so much. Uh, it gets to Rob saying, you know, gods be good, why would any man ever want to be king? That you have this this idealized dream that they fought a war for, that everyone's chasing, and it doesn't make anyone happy. Like, the only people it makes happy are, like, Joffrey and Euron, <laughs> just the complete sadists who are in it purely for... And Renly. For, for lust for power. And and Renly, who's just a, a, a softer, cuddlier version of Joffrey and Euron. Uh, same ego, just he's much, much better at not shoving daggers in people's faces. Not He'll not. starve you to death. That's more Renly style. He'll slowly kill you, whereas Joffrey and Euron will kill you immediately and publicly. Right. But, right. but yeah, right. I mean, that's the overall idea we get from this chapter is just that the kingship has, like you said, has just, just kind of destroyed Robert Baratheon from the inside out, and uh, Ned is is haunted too by what by what he lost in Robert's rebellion. But you know, Ned hasn't been Ned has been kind of keeping himself locked away inside Winterfell and with his kids, and has been trying not to think about the outside world that much. And now Robert has come barging in to disrupt that easy bubble that Ned had. And so Ned, as much as he loves seeing Robert again. Uh, it, it clearly disturbs him to have to reckon with time. Like, it's it's so clear that Ned, in his head, was refusing to acknowledge that Robert would look different when he saw him next. Like, Ned clearly was just thinking of young Robert the entire time. Right. And it's only now looking at him that he's forced to realize how long it's been since his sister died and how long it's been since he was happy and so long it's been since the world made sense to him. And now Damn. he's just... He, He's been keeping that down because he wants to be a good husband and a good lord and a good father. And he's been doing he's been doing those jobs as best he can, successful for the most part. 
But Robert coming back into his house and then going down to look at those ghosts, it definitely sparks something in Ned that he's, he didn't spend the rest of the book dealing with. I mean, later on in the book, you get his intense dream about the uh, the Liana's bed of blood and the Tower of Joy. Yep. He, he starts hearing Promise Me Ned over and over again. I honestly don't, don't get the sense it was this bad before Robert showed up. Like, it was probably still there, but the sense I get in these chapters is that it's as he goes to King's Landing where he lost, where his family was killed and He's, it's it's these these memories and dreams are starting to come up, boil up from within him more than they have in a long time. And ultimately, it makes the decision to try to let Cersei and her children go because of how much he doesn't want more dead kids and how much he doesn't want John to die. And subliminally, you can see when he's arguing for Danny's life with Robert that he's really arguing for John's life because he knows Robert would kill him. And it's just all these associations of dead children and loss and trauma. Just it's. You know, like Ned is just have being forced to relive all of this. Yeah, and it's 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 something he and then he brings his daughters into King's Landing and fears they're gonna die, and it's just this this kind of horrible cycle. And the 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 fragile heart of it, what what holds him to it, is his friendship with Robert, this this the, the boy he loved and gave him the best times of his life. Uh, and now they're both just kind of sad old men. I mean, not even that old, but they feel no. older than they are, really. Uh, I keep having to remind myself Ned's only 35 because he talks and thinks like a 60-year-old man a lot of the time. He talks yeah. like Tywin. Like his days are behind him and he's looking at his legacy and he's just... We're like, And Robert looks and feels older than he is uh, because just living with this has aged them. And you see that it goes out across the books. That's the same with Barbary Dustin and John Connington and uh, Duran and Oberyn Martell. They're all haunted by the people they lost in this era and that obsession is driving them to try to regain what they lost or make some sense of it or get some semblance of revenge and they're all on different sides of it and it's it's just a it's just a huge sad mess that whole generation is 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 so messed up by their backstory robert's rebellion you know they even the ones that won as, as you know as robert says you know Rhaegar, Rhaegar won damn it i drove my spike through his heart but right. i got the throne and he got her and yeah. that's that you see that in this chapter that we lost. We lost who we were, and it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be different than this. Like, like we we weren't supposed to be here like this. Fifteen years after winning the throne, me sad and old and fat and with a woman I hate and who hates me, and you, like freaked out and having traumatic nightmares, and like this isn't this isn't where we thought we would be. And you can see that sadness in this chapter. That's a, a joyful reunion between old friends, but also it's that heartbreaking moment when Robert says to Ned, "If I hear you say your grace again." You know, like he says, like what does he say exactly? He says, "Yeah, we we are more to one another than that." Yeah, and it's 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 so heartrending because he's Robert's like surrounded by people who he doesn't know or trust or love, and he wants to get that from Ned, especially with the loss of John Aaron. And they're both kind of they're trying to rekindle that flame, and it's it's a very kind of vulnerable state, and it's it it resonates very strongly. It does, and it's it's great how Martin uses that shared history that Ned and Robert have to drive the story forward. And so the the main emphasis of this chapter is very strongly introducing us to Ned and Robert. But the plot, the major plot point of this character, uh, the major plot point of this chapter is Robert offering Ned the position as Hand of the King. And it's in that context of their shared history in the crypts of Winterfell 
that we get this really interesting dynamic in this in the story. So just a, a teeny tiny little background. Um, Robert comes to Winterfell for one reason and one reason only, and that's to make Ned his, his hand of the king. And he needs a hand of the king that he can trust, and he the only person that he can trust is Ned, although, as, uh, as Stannis will later say, that he doesn't understand why Robert came to Winterfell and didn't ask him, as in Stannis, to, to be his hand of the king when Stannis had done nothing but shown loyal service to Robert throughout uh, Robert's entire reign. But Robert came to Winterfell to ask Ned to be his hand of the king. But it's interesting about that is that in this chapter, Martin does this really interesting thing where he's showing what I'm calling symbolism through statues in the chapter. So Ned and Robert are down in the crypts and they have this long conversation where they go through a number of things. Some of the things being Robert Aaron's fostering, something we'll talk about in a little bit, um, who's going to be the warden of the East. And then Robert says, he, I would make you hand of the king. And the thing about it is that it's in the context of being in the crypts of Winterfell, surrounded by all the dead lords and former kings in the north. And the crypts throughout the entire chapter, Ned thinks that they're judging him. Um, you have this really interesting dynamic that comes in where Ned talks about how the there's this quote of Robert saying, I betted a fish maid once who had told me the lowborn have a choice or way to put it. That is talking about the hand of the king. The king eats, they say, and the hand takes the shit. He threw his head back and roared his laughter. The echoes rang through the darkness and all around them. The dead of Winterfell seemed to watch with cold and disapproving eyes. Uh, interesting that the statues are cold and disapproving. Why are they cold and disapproving? Well, think about it this way. All of the Starks have been buried in the crypts of Winterfell. So we're talking about the kings in the north and the lords of Winterfell after Torrin Stark bent the knee to Aegon the first and 300 years prior to this, or around 300 years prior to this, this scene. So we're thinking about some of those dead Starks were probably dated back to back thousands of years, likely to the age of heroes. You know, you have this mention that Ned um, thinks about that the older statues have iron stains on them, indicating swords that have rusted away. So we know that, you know, the I don't even know the half-life. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not a scientist, but uh, the half-life of iron is, is, is old, right? You would have to think thousands of years at the very least that they've, they've, they've been down there. So why are the statues quote unquote disapproving? Is it just Ned, Ned's imagination or is there something else at work? And I think there's something else at work here. And it's something that's more, um, a bit more meta than simply in, in the, in the chapter itself. And the reason why they're disapproving is that Ned becoming hand of the King is quote unquote, marching in the wrong direction. And you have to think about it this way. Think about those Starks who were in the age of heroes. Some of them might have fought in the long night against the others. They know the score. They know that Ned is going south, takes him away from the place where winter fell. And you have that great line at the end of the chapter where it says, quote, For a moment, Eddard Stark was filled with a terrible sense of foreboding. This was his place, here in the north. He looked at the stone figures all around him, breathed deep in the chill silence of the crypt. He could feel the eyes of the dead. They were all listening, he knew, and winter was coming. 
winter was coming means that the others are coming. That are, those are the stark words that are there. And this is really brilliant on Martin's part. And <laughs> call me dumb or an idiot or whatnot, but I didn't catch this until this read. But those, but Martin uses those disapproving stone statues to continue stressing the underlying theme of the of our first few Winterfell chapters that Ned is abdicating his responsibilities by considering and eventually accepting Robert's offer to become Hand of the King when winter is coming. The others have returned, they are coming, and Ned, you're going in the wrong direction, man. You are heading down to King's Landing when the others have woken up. They're coming, and they're coming for all life on Westeros and perhaps beyond. So it's, it's a great thematic impulse that Martin uses here of using these statues to communicate overall themes in the story and in this chapter in particular showing us that Ned is making the wrong decision by becoming Hand of the King and it's a terrific way to communicate that and I think it's a testament again to Martin's writing of, of Song of Ice and Fire that he uses this um, th- uses the statues to communicate that theme. Yeah man, I think you nailed it. It's, it's you can and Ned has this kind of intuitive connection to Winterfell as a lot of his kids do, as a lot of the Starks do, and you can t- tell him he's he's sensing his home telling him that he shouldn't be doing this, that he's, he feels instinctively that it's the wrong choice, and that comes out, like you say, in language like winter was coming, and the constant emphasis on the cold, and on the older kings, because that's what the Starks are for, that's their thing, that's why they exist, is, is, to, is to fight mm-hmm. the others. And, you know, as we've said before, it's not that Ned is turning consciously turning his back on that role uh, I can certainly excuse him after 8,000 years for not being perfectly <laughs> aware of what's up with the others but in terms of the overall impact and effect the War of Five Kings has it's diverting attention resources away from the real fight and that I think is you know, one of the overall huge uh, points that Martin is making throughout the series is that the war as you said is is, is making it more difficult for us to turn to the real enemy when they get here. And, you know, you see uh, Lord Commander Mormont saying that later in the book, that when the dead men can wa- come walking, doesn't matter who sits the Iron Throne. And you see, like you said, uh, marching the wrong way, as Osha says about Rob, when, uh, when he marches south to try to rescue his father. And even with these good reasons and these relatable reasons to march south, uh, it's it's... It's myopic and it misses the real fight coming for Westeros. And you can, even as Martin has changed the details as he's gone on, you can see him building that argument right away in these early chapters. Uh, like we said with the prologue, it's, you know, that the, the prologue is meant to stay in the back of your mind as you read these chapters, that you got this vivid snapshot of the others. And so you know that all, all, of these, all this wheeling and dealing is going to get hit by that. And that gives it a whole different flavor. It does. And it's, it's interesting, we, we mentioned at the intro about uh, Fire and Blood Volume 1, about the thing I'm looking forward to is Craig and Stark in, in, the, re, in the Regency of Aegon III. But what's interesting in the world of Ice and Fire that we've read so far is how the Starks and the Northmen don't really venture south of the Neck all that often. They're not really much in the narrative of the Targaryen kings. And I have to wonder if Martin might be communicating the theme here throughout through that that we don't have the starks coming really having much of a presence in the dance of the dragons we have them a little bit some of the um oh shit i'm gonna i'm gonna mess this up who's that guy rowdy oh rowdy the ruin rowdy the ruin yeah coming coming to the (laughs) 
What did I say? Row- Rowdy Piper. Yeah. Rowdy Piper. Rowdy, Rowdy Piper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's They Live, but in Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, the, that dynamic doesn't exist. You, you have, you know, Torn Stark bending the knee when he doesn't have any other choice, when he knows he's going to be obliterated if he continues resisting against Aegon the First, but he doesn't really intervene. Um, in in the wars and you know in the Blackfire rebellions, you really don't see the Starks having really any role whatsoever in that. You don't have Lord Stark coming, at least so far as I, if I'm remembering correctly, coming to work on behalf of the Black Dragon or the Red Dragon. The Starks stay north of the Neck because that is the Starks' place and their purpose, being north of the Neck and being at the place where Winterfell, is to defend the realm from the existential supernatural threat that may be coming. And in, for these folks who, in, in the world of Ice and Fire, in the history of Westeros, you know, the, the others didn't come for them. The others didn't try to breach the wall or raise the dead, so far as we know, in the hundreds of years prior to this chapter from Ned Stark's perspective. But here we have that moment where Ned is considering and eventually accepts Robert's offer that the others are rising, they're here, they're bringing death to all living things on the continent and and Ned's just going in the wrong direction and it, it's a really it's it's a good and tragic thematic at work in Martin's writing and I think it just does a a, a terrific job of um, of communicating um, George's greater points about about the narrative but uh, beyond all that um, what did you, what did you what did you like or maybe dislike about this chapter a, a bit more specifically? Some of your specific likes and dislikes about this chapter. Something I've continually brought up in these early chapters is how well Martin handles exposition and how he is constantly couching it in emotionally resonant, immediately gripping ways. Uh, because one of the earliest, one of the easiest ways you can derail genre fiction is with an onslaught of exposition about your world in the opening few chapters in ways that aren't graceful or meaningful, but simply are just bludgeoned into your face repeatedly. Hmm. I mean, it's, it sounds obvious that you should root your exposition in the emotions of your characters. Uh, that sounds very basic, but a lot of genre fiction still doesn't really do that, or doesn't try to do that in the opening chapters. It just lists things at you. And you know, sometimes that's fine if it's, you know, you can get away with the title crawl in Star Wars because the music is playing and the words are simple and you're on, on board with the adventure. But I, something I really love about A Song of Ice and Fire is how Martin is, is mostly allergic to boring exposition dumps and really likes giving you information woven into character conversation and character uh, emotion and uh, memory and flashback in ways that feel appropriate to the character, and I think this this is a great example of it. It's so important that we know about Lyanna Stark and the circumstances of her death uh, in terms of John's parentage and the overall and the secrets kept by Rhaegar and why he was doing what he was doing. It's it, these are crucial details for the wider story, but couching it in terms of Robert and Ned's grief for her is is an immediately emotionally stirring way of getting that getting those details across to you. They are not simply neutral facts on a Wikipedia page. They are part of a story of tragedy and loss and deceit and grief and age and all all that all that good stuff. You are you know, you immediately understand why we should care about these facts, not sim- simply that they are facts in the narrative. And that's it's I think it's beautifully done. I think it's there's a reason that you know, a character like Lyanna or a Shara Dane or other characters that never appear in the main narrative get a lot of attention from fans of the story because they're 
they're given real weight and we, we are given to understand that their decisions and lives had real impact on the present day narrative, that they're not just not just details in the back of a painting. Right. But that we're living we're living in the world they made and we're living in the in the wake of their decisions and, and feelings. And that like I said, that's true about the people who die within the narrative. We see Ned's legacy and Tywin's legacy play out in oppositional ways over the course of feast and dance. Uh, we see the Martells constantly dealing with loss and how how they push forward in spite of it. And I, yeah, I love that. I love the way Martin handles backstory and how he how he conveys it to you and how he shows how it's impacting the character still and how he reminds you about it. Uh, it's it's again like a lot of what I love about these early chapters. It's it's something that can go so poorly if you do it hastily or clunkily or without much thought. And he put so much thought into how he conveyed information about this world. And it's 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 really what makes the story stand up through these early chapters when you're yeah. not necessarily not delving deep into character yet. You haven't got to any of the big plot twists, any of the big reveals. This is what keeps you going is how well he conveys the details of this world. And, and that's something that comes through so strongly in the crypts. It's 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 backstory, but it doesn't feel like backstory. It's not like like you said. It's not an info dump. It feels organic to the narrative, right? Robert and Ned talking about um, about Lyanna and about the Greyjoy Rebellion and about Robert's Rebellion. It, it doesn't feel like that. Oh, well, this happened and then that happened and then this was the consequence. It feels very authentic to the characters and authentic to the narrative too. Whereas you were, if you would be speaking to someone about someone you hadn't seen in 15 years that you had a shared, very contentious, um, but also a, a contentious relationship as well as a good friendship that you would immediately dwell back to these moments in the relationship and in the history in your own thoughts. And I think that just works in, works great in, in this chapter it, it works well to to have Robert and Ned reflecting on on the outcomes of the Battle of the Trident and on what that meant to these characters and what it meant to them in terms of their emotions and how they grapple with the past and I think it's a uh, and and how that bounds forward in, into the present I think it's a great way that Martin does to 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 write this chapter Absolutely, and it works well in large part because the dialogue between Robert and Ned is so great and so natural feeling, and there you can immediately get the sense of their relationship. And I know their their friendship is a, a favorite relationship of yours. You've talked oh, yeah. before about that. Yeah, I, I do love the the way that they interact. Um, it, it it's very real and authentic to me. And uh, whatever Robert's faults and evils, and they are many, as we as is developed in the narrative. Um, the friendship between Ned and Robert is real, and it, and it comes out that these are two guys that, you know, you think about this like a reunion, uh, not like a bad like high school reunion, but like a, seeing a friend you haven't seen in a few years, and you just pick up almost immediately where you were before. You have both the nostalgia that has an impact in the in the narrative where they're both talking about the past, but you also have you know some elements of their contentious relationship too where you know robert as you've said is being like damn it ned stand up stop calling me your grace you know robert wants things to be the way they were 15 years ago but they they can't be the way they were 15 years ago robert's the king ned is his lord of the north um and and that feels real and it feels tragic and it feels authentic but i i i, I love the way that they they interact and it's one of the highlights in a Game of Thrones is whenever Robert and, and Ned are talking 
it always feels it, it never feels stilted to me it always feels like two real people talking and again it, it really works as a as a as a testament to, to George's way of writing dialogue and that dialogue just flows off the page it doesn't just kind of dwell in it, it's not small dialogue it's not dialogue that you're that you kind of think about for a moment and then you just forget about you you think about the way that they they talk and they interact and it feels real it feels like you're talking with your best friend or you're talking with a close friend and you know for me it, it's something that I, I I feel a strong resonance to both emotionally as well as to things in my real life whereas you know some friends that I haven't seen in a few years I if, if I see them or, or or reach out to them or talk with them on the phone or even text or something like that it's it, it feels real to me. I, I, it's, I have a hard time defining it, but it, it definitely feels authentic, and, and and I really enjoy it a lot. I agree. I mean, again, so much of this chapter is about the passage of time and kind of realizing it and feeling its weight and how it digs into you uh, in bittersweet ways, you know, in, in ways that make Ned and Robert happy to see each other as well as sad. And, it, yeah, it feels very authentic to how those how those relationships work. Yeah, I mean, the character stuff is really what I love about this chapter. Again, plot-wise, there's only really one major plot point, and that is Robert asking Ned to be hand. And I, we were talking a little bit beforehand. I know we both, that's the kind of one area of the chapter that isn't super smoothly executed. No. <laughs> we were talking a bit about that, yeah. Yeah, so uh, for me, uh, when Robert makes the offer to Ned to become his hand, George R. R. Martin, through Ned, has to immediately define the roles and responsibilities of the Hand of the King. And it's weird to me because Robert, even before he offers the Hand of the King to Ned, he defines it for us in a much more compelling way of how difficult it is to sit on the Iron Throne and hear people complain all the time and everyone lies. The small folk lie and his nobles are just as bad as the small folk are. And I think that's a great way of, of defining what the Hand of the King does. But then as soon as Robert makes the official offer to Ned, Ned has to think to himself, oh, well, the hand of the king, he leads the king's armies. He speaks with the king's voice. He's the second most powerful man in the, in the seven kingdoms. And I guess when I, when I read that, I'm kind of like, well, I think it might be more dynamic and more organic in the narrative if you have Robert talking about how difficult it is and then you have Ned experiencing it later on which is what he does in you know from a Game of Thrones from Eddard 4 on is that you have Ned fulfilling the roles of the Hand of the King and we get to see it so it's 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 a little bit of it's a bit of of tell don't show uh, unfortunately on Martin's part and it's something that I'm I'm not a huge fan of but I guess it, at the same time this is Ned's first chapter right so George probably felt that he had to define some of these terms, especially something like Hand of the King, which is not something that is that we as modern readers would understand or be aware of, although I believe it was a position in the uh, War of the Roses for the English throne that there was a Hand of the King position. But we as people who are living 600 years past the War of the Roses, or 550 years, whatever it is at this point, uh, we don't necessarily, we wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards what that is and what that means. But again, it, it does feel a little bit awkward in the narrative. And I think that's also something that you, that you, that you picked up on as well in these, in, in this chapter. Yeah, this is going to be part of a running thread as we go through Ned's chapters. One thing that I think that's interesting about Ned's character, but also frustrating because I'm not sure how deliberate is it, <laughs> deliberate it is. 
And it's that Ned doesn't really seem to understand his job, or he only understands it half the time. Like, his conception of what Hand of the King is, is... It's, it's inconsistent. Like, when he lists out here, it seems like he gets it. He's the second most powerful person. He appoints the bureaucracy. He leads the military. He sits the throne when the king's not around, which is a lot because it's Robert. Right. But then when you actually get him to the small council room, like, he's referring to himself as first among equals... And yeah. like just as a personal advisor to the king, and he doesn't seem to realize he can and should fire some of these guys. <laughs> and but then later he sits on the throne while Robert is gone, and he like orders Gregor killed, right? Like without like even though Pycel says maybe you should wait for Robert before you make a call that big, and that's you know says no, I'm going to take this. so it's inconsistent and it's inconsistent in the way that I think just fits the needs of the plot in that given moment. Like obviously Martin needs Ned not to replace Littlefinger because he needs Littlefinger around to stab Ned in the back but he also needs Ned to send Barrack out after Gregor to get that whole plot going and I think you know for me Hand of the King really gets interesting when uh, the Lannisters take over that position you get to see yep. Tyrion and Tywin and briefly uh, Kevon in that role because when, when the Lannisters are in charge of King's Landing it's like it's like a Scorsese movie. Like, I would love to see Scorsese make a movie about the Lannisters because it's they, they function like an organized crime family. I would watch that. And you can, just hear, you can just hear the voiceover and see the swooping camera as Tyrion, like, takes over and fires Jaina Slint or when Tywin takes over and he's setting up the Red Wedding. And, um, and they just have... They obviously have a more cynical and bloodthirsty look at power. <laughs> right. But they also... You also... I also get where their view on power comes from and it feels a little more consistent. Whereas with Ned... I feel like Martin is caught in this position where Ned's not an idiot, but Martin needs to him needs him at certain points to not use the full capacity of his job yeah. and other points to do so. And so I, I think it fits into the clunkiness where you were talking about where uh, a lot of it is just like feeding you exposition as needed and Martin didn't really have a whole handle. I just think the, the, the workings of the federal government of King's Landing for me get a lot more interesting when the Lannisters just take over. Uh, and they're just running their scam in the open. I think that then it becomes a lot more kind of... There's a more momentum to it. Uh, with Ned, it's it's very stop and start, I think, because it keeps changing how in charge he is and how in charge he wants to be. Like, or like there's moments where it's like he's been arguing with the council, Arya says, and we never really find out about what. Right. Or, there, you know, and he defies Robert in the middle of a council meeting and is throwing his badge down on the table. And there's there's a lot of great moments, but... I don't really see a full arc for Ned in terms of... I, there's a full arc for Ned in a lot of ways, but for me, not in terms of his relationship to being Hand of the King. His his position on that always, he always seems to... It seems to fluctuate a little weirdly to me. And I think that's that might be just partially just because it's the first book and partially because it's, you know, it's, it's Ned's sense of Northern justice. And that is really what grounds Ned as Hand of the King, I think, and what makes it work is that his belief that you should, you know, if you pass the sentence, you should swing the sword. And so he's he's not great at handling institutional power and understanding that he can get people to do things for him and that he, you know, he needs to control certain areas without necessarily running it himself. And you see, like, someone like Tyrion is much better at that. Uh, so, you know, it works overall in terms of Ned's downfall, but... Yeah, Ned is Ned is hand of the king is actually for me my least favorite part of his story. Like when he's actually running the government, that's actually the stuff I care about least because um, so much of it is just stuff that's over his head. The stuff I really find compelling about Ned is his backstory and his relationship to Robert 
and his relationship to his kids and Catalin and just his, the, this portrait of a guy who's really certain he's making the bad decisions all over again, but is, is trying his best to do right by everybody. Uh, that's what I really love about Ned Stark. His, I think him him as a uh, as far as the King's Landing plot goes, though, for me, uh, it's it's less compelling than when the Lannisters take over, just because just because they do more things right. than than Ned does. Ned's so much of Ned's story in King's Landing by necessity is him choosing not to do things or being blocked off of certain decisions or keeping quiet about things, and when Tyrion and Tywin and Cersei, especially Cersei, take over. It's just kind of this glorious despotism that is is, is, is less admirable, but more interesting. I, know, I find kind of I find more interesting. And like part of me, like King's Landing, like I want to be cynical about King's Landing. Everything about King's Landing is oh, cynical. Yeah. It's this giant stinking cesspit where everyone keeps dying all the time, and like you know, the bowls of brown are full of people. And it's like it's not supposed to be like Winterfell is where you have some ideals and some you know you're trying to protect people. Or Edmure at River Run, but like King's Landing, I like being cynical about King's Landing. You should so be. I guess that's for me why. I, exactly for me, that's um, it's almost fitting that Ned doesn't fit in there. But yeah, so overall, uh, the Hand of the King stuff is definitely the the clunkiest bit of this chapter. It's it's most interesting when it's focused on character and less so on plot. I think I I, I totally agree, and uh, you know you you kind of triggered something in in me. You know how Ned should be removing Littlefinger. Um, and, and Varys and Pycelle and all of these Lannister cronies or people who are actively undermining the government. Um, but it doesn't make sense why he doesn't make these moves in a game. I mean, it does make sense in some of the context of the character moments. You have Littlefinger's relationship with Catelyn, Varys who tries to make himself indispensable and pretends to be Ned's ally. Um, but one of the things that this, that kind of comes out is that Tyrion's reasons for not removing these guys are much more uh, interesting and more uh, fluid in the narrative in that he's um, he realizes he can't remove Littlefinger because he has all of these different um, fingers and different pies and he needs a source of income and money in order to defend King's Landing against uh, Renly and then Stannis' army. And so he has this this rationale, even though he knows that Littlefinger has actively betrayed him and actively tried to get him killed. And as we find out at the end of a clash of... Well, we don't find out, as is popularly theorized, that Littlefinger tries to get him killed again at the end of a clash of kings of the Battle of the Blackwater through Man and Moor, which is something we'll talk about a lot more in depth in, in the next couple of years, I'm assuming. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it does kind of work in better I think in, in Tyrion and in Tywin when they're both the hands of the king and I, I find uh, a lot of comedy in the um, different hands that Cersei has in Feast for Crows and how incompetent and awful and stupid they are um, they're, they're humorous uh, characters and in a kind of tragic comedy that is Cersei's arc in Feast for Crows but you did mention how Ned's story works best as, as backstory like how you enjoy that the best and I think that's a really excellent point and one of the we had, we've kind of alluded to it here, but one of the interesting things about this chapter is that we get a whole lot of R plus L equals J stuff in this chapter. A lot of subtle hints and not so subtle hints. Uh, so I figured uh, in terms of our groundwork and connections to other parts of the narrative, I would just list a few of the things that that I saw and maybe you saw, saw some other things here as well uh, in the chapter. 
Oh, the, the first thing that really stood out to me is that the connection between Lyanna and her flowers, and as we find out in Daenerys Targaryen's The Clash of Kings, House of the Undying Vision, you have that great imagery of the chink of, or you have that great imagery of the blue flower growing out of a chink of ice. So you have Lyanna, and you have that connection between her and flowers, and you have Danny's later vision in The Clash of Kings, which does lend a whole lot of evidence and support for R plus L equals J. Uh, one thing that's a little more subtle uh, that I saw there is this quote that Ned is thinking about Robert, and he says, quote, Robert Brathian had always been a man of huge appetites, a man who knew how to take his pleasures. And then this is the important part. This, that was not a charge anyone could lay at the door of Eddard Stark. So what that's communicating subtly here is that, okay, so Robert has bastards all over the kingdoms, as we find out um, in a Game of Thrones. He's drinking a lot. He's but all, he's doing all these all these other sorts of, of stuff. Eating a lot. Um, he's overweight. He's not in, in the best of health. But Ned is not like that, and I think that's an interesting um, connection in that it's not a charge anyone can lay at the door of Eddard Stark. Meaning that when we find out about Robert's bastards, we're supposed to look back at this chapter. Perhaps, perhaps Martin wants to look look back at this chapter and be like, okay, so Robert had been a man of appetites who knew how to take his pleasures in fathering bastards, but that was not a charge anyone could lay at the door of Eddard Stark. So we're supposed to think, hmm, that's interesting. I don't... What about Ned Stark's bastard? He took his pleasure there, right? Right? But but no, probably not. Actually, definitely not. Yeah, that's the great irony is that Ned's reputation turns out to be correct. It's a clue just hiding for you in plain sight. The yeah, the guy who seems like he'd be the last person to father a bastard didn't father a bastard. Right. And we should, you know, we're told he's Ned's bastard, but everything we're given about Ned's character communicates that that seems extremely unlikely for him. And that it turns out to be because that's not what happened. But it's it, it works as a shield because people want to believe that about him, like Cersei kind of indicates when they have their fateful confrontation in, in King's Landing. That people want to believe that, oh, the proud, honorable Ned Stark, he's just like everyone else. He isn't better than us. He, too, stooped low and <laughs> slept with a woman outside his marriage. You know, that that's, that fits the, the endless gossip circle of Westeros. And it fits, you know, even if there are small folk who want to, you know, look, look badly at, at the proud Lord Edward Stark, that fits that narrative. So it's, it's easy to keep up because people liked, like to see a chink in the armor and a break in that kind of reputation, uh, including us. You right. know, we accepted it. Your first time through the books, you accept it immediately. But I love how Martin shows that by just presenting, yes, the reputation of Ned Stark, who would never take his appetites like Robert Baratheon. So maybe that kid probably isn't his, actually. <laughs> right. And that's just that. That's such an ingenious way to build it in. Uh, and yeah, I love all the R plus L equals J foreshadowing in this chapter. is great. Uh, yeah, the bed of blood, the promise me Ned, uh, and, the, and the stuff about, about taking his pleasures and about how, how Ned functions differently from Robert. It's yeah, it's it's great to go back to that and see see the groundwork laid for you know what is the big theory, the big reveal of the whole series, uh, and it's just it's just subtly perfectly done. It's not doesn't give you away first time through, but once once you know about it, it just stands out so strongly. It really does, and you know our, our friends at Radio Westeros, um, Yolk Boy and, and Lady Quinn had a great episode about RLJ, um, which you guys should all listen to, obviously because they're an excellent podcast and they're friends of ours. But uh, one of the things that I believe Lady Gwyn mentioned in that podcast itself was that we get the most amount of R plus L equals J hints in the first book. 
And the reason why that's the case is that, you know, for those of you who don't know, Martin originally conceived of A Song of Ice and Fire as a three-book trilogy in which the books were basically A Game of Thrones, A Dance with Dragons, and The Winds of Winter. Those were the three books that he had in mind. Um, but, or rather, actually, I think it was A Game of Thrones, A Dance with Dragons, and A Time for Wolves. Or maybe I'm getting it all confused. R- regardless. I think that's right. Is that right? Yeah. yeah okay. Um, regardless, the the reason why you have so much RLJ stuff in this first book is that you think about it as the first book of a trilogy, the first third of the book, it sets the foundation for um, the big reveal of, of John as, as Rhaegar and Lyanna's son, something that the show confirmed, if you were watching the show. Um, but you really didn't need the show to confirm it if you are... Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, um, the there's there's a couple other like small points here. Uh, you have that thing about Robert talking about that the the small folk are hiding and that there are kings under the snow, under the snow, Ned. You know that sort of line, which people have said that that's a, and I concur with them that that's a allusion to uh, John being the hidden king under the snow so he's he's a Targaryen under his Jon Snow identity which I think is a cool way of doing it and then the other thing that's a little more um, and this is my last one the other thing is a little bit more uh, subtle is that you have mentioned if Theon's fostering at Winterfell and I think this helps solidify R plus L equals J Ned takes ownership over Theon so as to save the boy's life similar to how Ned took Lyanna's son in after the Tower of Joy in order to save Jon's life um, Robert doesn't have the same hatred for the Greyjoys, or at least he doesn't exhibit it in this book, that he has for Rhaegar and for the Targaryens and the quote-unquote dragon spawn. But at the same time, you can see why Ned might be a little concerned for the safety of this eight-year-old kid, I believe. I believe he was eight years old when he was taken hostage at, at Pike after the Siege of Pike concluded with victory for Robert and Ned. So you can see why he would want to safeguard this kid, because he wants to ensure that you know, an eight-year-old child doesn't die at the hands of, of his friend. And that is a an, an interesting dynamic that Martin plays with throughout all five published books of A Song of Ice and Fire, of safeguarding children, and what we do to safeguard children, and what we sacrifice when we safeguard um, children in innocence. So, um, and, and, but that the Theon example works to solidify Ned's role in safeguarding kids and uh, safeguarding innocence from harm. So he does it with Theon in, at the end of the Greyjoy Rebellion, and he does it with John at the end of Robert's Rebellion. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think it's a... It's, it's an idea you're not going to get much pushback on, is that, like, the test of your social system is if it saves kids or not. <laughs> right. You know, that's, that's, that, that's what you want the social contract to do, right? That's what you want your ideals to be about. That's what you want to believe you're fighting for. That's what you want to believe you wouldn't do. And a lot of the story pushes that particular button and pushes characters in that direction, uh, from Ned and Cersei's kids to Stannis and Shireen to the fates of uh, Tommen and Marcella, you know, and the and the books to come. Or they said it on the show, like when uh, Oberyn said, you know, we don't hurt little girls in Dorne, right. and that's something he wants has to believe and wants to believe, and that's what makes his cause worthy, and that's what makes it worthwhile. And and then. You know, but then the reply, they, they hurt little girls everywhere. Right. You know, there's there's no no place, no people immune to that possibility. And that comes through strongly in this chapter. It comes through much more strongly when Ned and Robert argue about Danny and her fate. And there's, um, we'll talk more about this 
in the chapter, but it's the, the most potent Ned Robert moment for me is when Ned asks Robert, what did we fight for if not to put an end to the murder of children? Right. What was the point of rising up against the Mad King if not to declare that this kind of thing is not okay? And Robert just said, no, to put an end to Targaryens. That's why I was fighting. And Ned realizes all at once that this that the war meant completely different things to the two of them. Yeah. And that Ned was fighting for an ideal and for a cause. And for Robert, it was just, those are the bad guys. And they hurt me and I want them gone. And, you know, Ned is, so much of Ned's story in this book is about wanting to believe that he fought for something more than that. Want, he needs Robert's rebellion to have meant more than that because he lost his entire family in the process. So he, I mean, most, not Benjamin, but for most of his right, family yeah. in that process. And so... You see him insisting that, you know, Robert needs to be more than this, that I thought we made you a better man than this. I thought we had made a better king. And you see that, that kind of disappointment and the, the existential panic that it kind of induces in him start in this chapter, just a little, a little tremor of the full-on anger he's going to experience later because part of him wants to yell at Robert, I lost my whole family, man, right. we fought a war. Right. And you're sitting there getting fat and doing nothing and letting Littlefinger and the Lannisters bankrupt the government? What was... That's such an insult to my sister and my father and my brother and everyone we lost that you're making nothing out of it. And you were supposed to, that was supposed to be the silver lining for all our losses was a, a good kingdom, better than, far better than Eris. And Robert kind of blew it and he gradually realizes that towards the end. And yeah, that, that, that relationship is so, so haunted, so rooted in the backstory. And it's, yeah, it's so well written. It is. It really is. And, uh, it, that that dynamic of of Ned realizing that Robert maybe hasn't betrayed what they had won in, in Robert's rebellion, but has gone in a direction that is distasteful, that is wrong, that is evil, as we find out when he orders the the deaths of Viserys and Daenerys, you you really feel that emotional punch for Ned in that he's he's. He's thinking about all the people that have died in the rebellion. He lost his father, brother, and sister, like you said, and it just it, it just drives home that that point of that there are no real winners in at the end of the rebellion. Right? There was no one that actually won Robert's rebellion, even though it was totally justified. Don't let the show lead you astray on that one. Um, uh, but there is one other child here uh, that is mentioned. Uh, well, there's a few. There's actually two other child. There's Sansa that's mentioned briefly in Joffrey. Uh, but there's one other child that's mentioned. I, I figured this would probably be a good opportunity to talk about um, Robert Aaron and his, the confusing fostering because there is a lot of people that are like, what is going on with Robert Aaron? What is going on with his fostering? So, And I'm one of those people, so I've been eagerly awaiting Jeff. <laughs> Jeff laid it out very nicely. So please elucidate me because this, yeah, this got me all in tangles the first time through. And it's always just been kind of a headache for me ever since. So it, it, bring it on, brother. It is a bit of a headache. And you do kind of wonder whether that this is something that evolved in, in George's mind as he was writing the books because it, it's not incredibly clear in the Game of Thrones. But OK, so in this chapter, Robert reveals that he plans to foster uh, Robert Aaron, that is John Aaron's son with Tywin. But later on, we learned that, no, it wasn't Tywin. Rather, Robert Aaron was meant to be fostered with Stannis, which is something that Stannis... Uh, Maester Cresson and uh, Walter Frey, of all people, bring up. So, what kind of gives with that? So, the so here here's 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 my interpretation of it. Robert's plan was to foster 
John Aaron's son with Tywin Lannister at the assistance of his wife, Cersei. We get this from that uh, straight line that Robert mentions, that Cersei was furious when Lysa and her son left King's Landing. Um, why would she be furious unless there was... Uh, she had plans for the boy, and the, the plan was to have him fostered with Tywin Lannister. So what does this do for the Lannisters to have Robert Aaron fostered with them? For one, it gives the Lannisters a key player in order to keep the Vale out of any future civil war, or to bring the Vale into a future civil war on the side of the Lannisters. So the question you have to ask yourself is that at this juncture, does at this juncture, does this mean that Cersei and perhaps Tywin were planning for the eventuality of war? And I think yes. And here's the reason why I think yes. Think about towards the end of a Game of Thrones as the dogs of war are gathering or and the storm clouds of war are gathering. And suddenly you have Tywin Lannister that is able to amass a huge army and invade the Riverlands very, very quickly. How was he able to invade the Riverlands so quickly unless he already had the forces in place? And one of the things that he has in place are the swords from Westeros that we will later learn are the Brave Companions or the Bloody Mummers, as they're commonly known. They had to be brought over from Essos to Westeros prior to the actual war kicking off. So it reads to me that the Lannisters were preparing for a future war likely to replace Robert. And this is actually something that gets brought up in Bran's second chapter, where Bran overhears Jaime and Cersei plotting slash fucking and um, that that has one and the same for them. Pretty much, just, yeah. That's just one action, <laughs> right? Right. So, so that we we see the early that early dynamic here that the Lannister Lannisters are preparing for war, potentially to unseat Robert Baratheon and place their own candidate onto the Iron Throne. So then, what does this mean to the later notions that we have that Stannis and Walter Frey bring up that Robert Aaron was supposed to be fostered with Stannis? So. I think what's happening here is that as we find out in A Clash of Kings, Stannis brought his suspicions over Jaime and Cersei's incest and the parentage of Cersei's children to John Aaron. So Stannis was the first one who who knew or had suspicions rather. He brought the he brings them to John Aaron, and then after that that leads to their own set of plotting. So what I think is what happened is that John Aaron agreed to foster Robert Aaron with Tywin originally, but later when Stannis approached John Aaron about his suspicions over Cersei and Jaime's incest, and the evidence seemed to indicate that that, that that was true, they made new plans to secure Robert Aaron and his fosterage with Stannis Baratheon, which kind of, it's, it's convoluted. You have scheming and counter-scheming at work, but I think that's probably the simplest way to look at it. Now, I do have questions about it. Things like, how did Walter Frey know about that's that... Um, that John, that Robert Aaron was supposed to be fostered with Stannis, since Walter Frey is really kind of isolated from the goings-on in King's Landing and the goings-on in Dragonstone in particular. Um, I, I'm sure there's there, there may be an in-universe explanation or a theory that exists out there, but it's something that does kind of make me kind of turn my head a little bit and wonder at, at George's uh, thoughts, thoughts and thinking behind um, Walter Frey knowing. I, and I understand the narrative purpose of it in that it's supposed to relay... Um, a bit of ambiguity early in A Game of Thrones when Walter Frey is talking with Catelyn Stark about um, Robert's fostering that we're supposed to go like, huh, well, didn't wasn't Robert Aaron supposed to be fostered with uh, with Tymon Lannister? As, because Robert Baratheon said this to, to Ned back in A, in a Game of Thrones. But uh, it's, it's kind of a minor nit, but it is something that, that I do have questions about because it does feel 
weird, for, for lack of a better term. Well done, sir. I think that, yeah, I think that lays it out as best as it possibly can be. It, Yeah, some of the details are weird, especially Walter Frey knowing about it. It feels like maybe Martin didn't think that one through, and there's not really much of a payoff for it. But I do like it as just an element of this Cold War going on in King's Landing. And one thing I do love about how this unfolds is that we learn more details about that Cold War all the time. The yep. biggest example being, of course, that it was Lysa and Littlefinger who killed John Aaron. Yes. But there's also, like you said, in Clash of Kings, we learn a lot more about what Stannis was up to. Uh, you know, later we have details about Pycelle standing by while John Aaron died, assuming that Cersei was the one who poisoned him. <laughs> and yeah, we're always learning more about about how things were right before Ned showed up in King's Landing, which I like. It's King's Landing wasn't a tabula rasa that he just kind of walked into. There was already stuff in progress when he showed up. And and as, uh, as it gradually evolves, like Ned... Ned was just this weird fluke that no one saw coming. Like, everyone was already ready for war, and it was a very specific war. It was Stannis versus the Lannisters. Like, that's the setup that was clearly building in King's Landing. Stannis went to John Aaron. They had a conspiracy ready to go. Like, they, you know, there was this little war between the two factions over Sweet Robin as a hostage. Uh, Stannis went back to Dragonstone to prepare for, for battle after John Aaron died. And then Ned is, Ned is what no one saw coming, and as Varys tells Ned... You know, he upset all the Lannisters' plans because they were ready to kill Robert, but then they were worried about what Ned would do. And, you know, Ned just is a, is a wrench thrown in the works of all these guys. And I, yeah, especially Ned has this great line in this chapter when Robert brings up fostering sweet Robin uh, with with Tywin. And that is, Ned would sooner entrust the child to a pit viper <laughs> than to Lord Tywin, which is great. Like, this is the first time Tywin Lannister is brought up. And right away, Martin wants wants you to feel a certain way about the dude. Correct. I mean, like yeah. you know, Ned. Ned does not hate a lot of people. He resents some people. He doesn't understand it, but he loathes Tywin Lannister. Oh yeah, very visibly, and clearly, oh, yeah. and for good reason. So, and that 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 comes through strongly here. And that's yeah, it's a nice little little mystery. It's a nice little bit of intrigue. But yeah, it is kind of unnecessarily thorny. Uh, and it's it's really only interesting to me as like yeah a window onto this war in King's Landing and I do like something we'll talk about much more in chapters to come I love how Stannis is built up in this book oh, you don't yeah. meet him until the next book but he's this great offstage presence where people are talking about him and reacting to what he's done or what he might do what he's thinking about uh, and he doesn't come up in this chapter yet I don't think he's he's not mentioned until until Jamie says that he would give anyone indigestion which is the perfect <laughs> for Stannis mention perfect absolutely perfect. Yep. But, you know, it's, it's already already the plot points that involve him are starting to crop up. And you can see Martin laying the groundwork for what Stannis is going to be. And that's something I've talked about before, but it's one of my favorite parts of his writing is how he builds up characters before you meet them. It's kind of the opposite of how well he talks about backstory. He also does really well at laying the groundwork for characters you have yet to meet. Yeah, uh, He does that with Stannis. He does it really well with Mance in A Clash of Kings, building him up throughout John's chapters before you meet him in the next book. He builds up Marwyn the Mage in the first three books before you end up meeting him. Mm -hmm. He builds up John Connington. You don't even really know that that's a buildup because he's just a character from the backstory and you know it's never indicated you're going to meet him until you do. Right. But by the time you do, you already know about the Battle of the Bells. You already know that he lost all the Connington land because you met Red Ronnet. You know that he was hanging around Rhaegar, so you have his backstory motivations already make perfect sense when you meet him. And yeah, it's it's again, Martin does all this because he wants to avoid sitting you down and just throwing exposition at your face. He wants to find 
these graceful, well-integrated ways of letting you know what the score is and why these characters are coming from and what they care about, and then keep it moving. He doesn't want to get bogged down. And so much of these opening chapters is just marvels of fleet character development. And even even a clunky, clunky example like the stuff about Hand of the King, like we were saying, or about the unnecessarily convoluted back and forth about Sweet Robin, it's still... It's still all really well done in terms of its service to character, and that comes through strong. Yeah, to be sure, and and it really it, it bears itself out throughout a Game of Thrones uh, about how strongly Martin is writing characters, and and that you know brings me to one of my favorite character dynamics, and that character dynamic being that Daenerys Targaryen is the son of Rhaegar. And Lyanna, which is very Jeff. Str- listen, Jeff, we need to we need to have a talk. What? Every why do we have to do it every time, Jeff? That we have to like four fifths of the way through the episode, you got to reach through the screen and just grab my heart and just shatter it into a thousand pieces. <laughs> what, what, why? Why do you feel the need? What is the emptiness within you, sir, that you feel the need to do this to me every time? Why? Well, it's it it's a real theory. No, <laughs> it's a real theory. He he does this to taunt me, folks. He, he it's just it's just dangling bait in front of me like fish in front of a cat, it, or fish in front of me because I also like fish. I, who doesn't love fish? Um, but no, um, I, I do it because I'm empty inside, and I want you to experience that emptiness as well. So the best way I could do that is by throwing these nonsense theories around. But no. Not today. Today, Don't believe him, folks. He has a heart of gold. He's full of nothing but emotions and rainbows and love for his children. Love for children. He'll deny it. He'll deny it. <laughs> I, I say as, as my daughter is <laughs> crying in the background. Um, but no. Uh, but. T- today, uh, instead of getting the um, your theory is, is bad and you're ugly section of this uh, podcast, we thought it might be a more fun an interesting thing to talk about the crypts in particular, um, the Winterfell crypts. Um, we've had, uh, there's been a number of, of our friends who've done great podcasts on, on the crypts of Winterfell, LML and Joe, the Ma- and Joe magician did a great live, uh, live cast, I believe on the crypts of Winterfell and history of Westeros also did a great episode on, on the crypts of Winterfell, but, uh, but I'm curious, I- I'll kick this off like this. What is actually in the crypts of Winterfell that, or, or rather, what is in Lyanna's statue in Winterfell? Is there something, has Martin hidden something in that statue of Lyanna Stark? Because, you, you know, you, you don't have a lot of this backstory yet, but we have some of the backstory about, about Lyanna, but is there something in the crypts itself, either in Lyanna's tomb or in the crypts in general that you think is, uh, will be a major payoff come, come the winds of winter or perhaps in, in a dream of spring? The crypts are such a prominent location, given such kind of emotional weight and portent for multiple characters in many different respects, as, as we'll talk about in a bit. In uh, that way, it seems like they're hiding something, right? It seems like it's a location that holds a secret the way John keeps being drawn back there in dreams and almost as if he's trying to find something. The uh, crazy visions Bran has when he's down there at the end of Clash of Kings, Theon's intense relationship to them, especially when he goes back with Barbary Dustin. Yeah, so it's, it seems like there's something more to be uncovered, that there's some payoff waiting to be had with the crypts. And there's been theories that Rhaegar's harp or uh, Lyanna's some element or birthing blanket or some part of Lyanna's uh, birthing process of John is down there is kind of a clue. 
which is is, is certainly possible. Uh, I think it's 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 a little on the nose, and it's a little difficult to understand Ned's motivations in doing that, unless he was just blatantly leaving a clue for someone. Uh, for me, what I've always found intriguing about the possibility of what's really down in the crypts is uh, that there might be a clutch of dragon eggs down there. Interesting. Which is something that got brought up about World of Ice and Fire, about Vermax maybe leaving a clutch there as a sign of the Pact of Ice and Fire, uh, and John kind of ironically fulfilling the Pact of Ice and Fire many years later in an unexpected fashion between Rhaegar and Lyanna. And uh, if, if if they are down there, it would be interesting in a number of ways. It's It's... For me, it's more elegant in terms of representing John than just having the harp down there because it's a great metaphor for John. Like the dragon mm-hmm. eggs buried beneath Winterfell, like his dragon heritage is buried beneath his his Stark, his purported Stark Snow identity. Yep. I love that aspect of it. Uh, I love. I think it would be really interesting in terms of uh, Mance's desire to get down to the crypt. That has to pay off somehow, and it would be interesting if he discovered something down there, especially given all the similarities between Mance and Rhaegar. Uh, which uh, the harp could work out in that regard, given that Mance is a singer. That would be interesting to have him find it. But yeah, that having Mance down there. So I'm genuinely curious. I, I actually have no. I'm I'm not just. This is just a not a lead on for me to talk. But I'm actually genuinely curious. Why do you think that Mance Raider really wants to get down to the crypts of Winterfell so badly in the Dance of Dragons? Like, why is that? What what is he trying to find down there, or what's he trying? What information is he trying to establish down in the crypts? It might be he just wants a hiding place. Like Manson, Manson dance, and that rhymes. Manson dance is is so weird to me because it's so mysterious and opaque. Like it's first of all, it's not clear whether it was just Melisandre who spared him or whether it was both Stannis and Melisandre. Correct. That's deliberately kept vague. It's not clear why either one of them did that. Uh, for what purpose they had in mind, because the purpose they end up going with is to save Arya, which they couldn't have known was going to be a thing when they saved him. Right. Unless Mel saw it in her visions, which she doesn't appear to have until she later sees the gray girl and the dying horse, and that turns out to be Alice Karstark, so they send Mance to try to rescue her. But, like, she was supposed to be already fleeing the marriage on a horse by Long Lake, and then Mance ends up at Winterfell, where they didn't know the wedding was going to be, so somehow he got that information. And then, yeah, then there's this thing about trying to get into the crypts, which is left unclear. I mean, we know Mance is super into the Bale the Bard legend, mm-hmm. and he chooses the anagram for that Abel as his pseudonym within Winterfell. And, of course, that legend has a lot to do with the crypts. That's where uh, Bale and his, his lady Stark, his Stark wife, uh, reportedly hid. So it might, Mance might want that as a hiding place and trying to romantically echo that. Like, if his plan was to hide down there with Jane, like, that would be an exact copy of the legend. But then that ends up not being the plan. Right. Like, he sends the, the Sparewives and ended up running with Jane to try to climb down the walls. So it, it's all kind of a muddle at this point. It's 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 a, it's a mystery that I hope there's a clear, sharp answer to. Uh, and it would be... it would. So if I think I think if there's anything in the crypts, I would uh, guess that Mance is the one to uncover it because he is the one who was trying to get down there. Yeah, the, the, the problem is that, you know, at the end of A Dance of Dragons, when, when John receives the pink letter, Ramsay writes that he's... that, that Mance is alive, but he's wearing the, the skins of the Spearwise which is totally awful and, and evil and terrible. Um, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm very concerned about Mance Raider's uh, mental health uh, coming out of that experience. You have to imagine that he's going to be in a very dark and weird place. And you have to wonder maybe whether he might exhibit some um, symptoms of Reek or Theon as, as we, we find out, as you talked about in your essay. 
Um, so you, you do wonder what, what the changes in Mance's characterization might be come the Winds of Winter, provided he survives uh, both Ramsey the, and the Battle of Winterfell, the, or the proposed Battle of Winterfell with, with Stannis attempting to take the castle. Um, I, I, I've, I've also, yeah, I, I've, I've had a, I, I remember reading uh, Cantus's theory back in 2013 about um, the Rhaegar's heart being down there. I think that's an interesting idea, and I'm, I don't reject that by any stretch of the imagination. The, the, the questions that I have about that are, is it more than a nod to the reader? Are the, is the reader supposed to be like, okay, yeah, there's the harp. There's Lyanna's birth. There's Lyanna's wedding cloak. There's the birthing sheet or whatever it's going to be. And is it has to so it has to have a connection to the reader, but it also has to have a connection to the characters in universe, right? So if John stumbles across Rhaegar's harp, he's not going to be like, "Oh, Rhaegar's harp! Why? How amazing is it that I found Rhaegar's harp here? Rhaegar's harp? Why would he that must be my dad? Right? He must be my dad. Like, yeah, exactly. And and I think that's that's something that's. Um, that I always ask myself when I'm when I'm thinking about theories or writing about theories is that it, Martin will nod to the reader from time to time um, in, in ways that we'll we'll pick up and we'll talk about in this podcast. But a lot of the times, those nods have to have some sort of resonance to the characters um, that that are involved in in the nods, so to speak. Um, the same sort of thing goes for any of the other proposed things down there. I really like the idea, though, the, of of John finding the dragon eggs. I think that's an excellent idea that both symbolizes John's combined Stark and Targaryen identity um, and would also have some resonance uh, in the story, I believe, if, um, you know, one of the things that that I've, I've thought about as one of a, a darker theory is that in when the others come south of the wall, which we can assume is going to happen in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring, and you have Stannis encamped in in Winterfell that they have these dragon eggs so they have to raise stone dragons or they have to bring the dragons to life and so they have to use king's blood in order to bring the dragons to life and the dragons are the only way to 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 repel the others and to um, you know survive the winter and so that the the sacrifice of Shireen Baratheon by Stannis and Melisandre would make sense in that context so that would have some resonance not just a nod to Jon's identity but would have some resonance to the plot itself and to the character of Stannis and Melisandre. Uh, I think that's a great uh, connection that you that you you drew on that. Um, you, you know, the thing for me is the theories are, are terrific, and and I love reading about these theories about what's in the crypts of Winterfell because I, I'm I'm not super read in to, to be totally honest. I'm not super read in on uh, the theorizing about the crypts of Winterfell. But but what I do love about the crypts is is how it works to help symbolize Stark identity. Uh, and, and again, like we talked about, I love all the statues down there and I love that scene in, in my head. I can picture it of hundreds of Stark Lords and Kings throughout history. And some of the statues are all worn away um, down to nothing with, you know, the shards of metal. I, I almost have this idea of, if you remember from Fellowship of the Ring, um, the movie that is of, of Narcisse, you know, the broken sword being down there of all of these swords in various states of being down to just a couple rust colored stains on a statue to being the swords that Bran and Hodor and Jojen and Mira take out of the crypts of Winterfell. So at the end of A Clash of Kings, where Bran is fleeing Winterfell after the Boltons have burned it 
and he's witnessing, you know, the smoke coming out of the castle. Um, you know, they survive the Bran, Mira, Jojen, and Hodor, and Summer all survive, and, and also uh, Rickon Stark. Everybody's forgotten Stark, unfortunately, including myself. Um, they, they survive there under the crypts of Winterfell, and that serves as a resting safe place for them. But as they're leaving, um, the very last lines of A Clash of Kings um, are incredibly poignant to me. And the quote is, The stone is strong, Bran told himself. The roots of the trees go deep, and under the ground the kings of winter sit their thrones. So long as those remained, Winterfell remained. It was not dead, just broken. Like me, he thought, I'm not dead either. And I think that's a wonderful way of symbolizing that the Starks will endure, as which is something that Jojen Reed says says later on that they'll they will always, or rather that Ned Stark says later on that they will always endure. That might be in the TV show, maybe or maybe in the books. I can't remember, but um, but yeah. So I, I love the way that that the crypts of Winterfell symbolize Stark identity, that the Starks will survive, and you have that wonderfully poignant scene at the end of A Clash of Kings from Bran's uh, final chapter that really brings us to the fore and helps us um, understand uh, Martin's driving impulse in, in writing the Crypts of Winterfell um, in, in this really thematically poignant style and, and way of writing it. Yeah, I mean, the all of these kids from Winterfell, not just Bran, but also Jon and Theon and Sansa are always longing for Winterfell and their relationship to it is so poignant, like you say, and and the Crypts are part of that. It's, it's your your final resting place as a Stark. It's what roots you in that place more than any other for eternity. And everyone's always wondering if they can measure up to, to that intensity and that, that commitment. And it, it, it pulls such different emotions out of you, depending on which character you're talking about. And that's what makes it such a, a powerful setting dramatically. Yeah, it really is. So, um, I think that is just about it for this chapter, unless you got anything else you want to bring up about it. No, sir. I think we wrapped it up perfectly. Cool, man. Well, thanks, everyone, for, for listening to us. And uh, for now, I guess five episodes. I think I said four episodes of the intro, but it's actually this is episode five. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for listening. Absolutely. Uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes and, and Google Play. Uh, like we said at the beginning, you can find... Jeff at uh, Brendan Beefish on Twitter and myself at Poor Quentin. And you can also find our um, official podcast Twitter account, which is at Nauticast ASOIAF, and our email cast, which in our email and our email address, which is Nauticast ASOIAF at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. And so just drop us a line anytime you want to. Absolutely. And we're going to be. Uh, looking at possibilities in terms of Patreon in the weeks to come, so we'll let you guys know what we decide on that. Uh, we've heard a couple people bring it up as a possibility, and we're certainly researching it, but we haven't made any final decisions yet, but we will let you know as we do. Yeah. So, join us next week for our first point of view chapter from The Prince That Was Promised, or Azora High, or The Last Hero, or yeah, fuck it, just everyone's favorite bastard depending on your point of view. John won. So John Snow's first chapter is next week. John Snow gets well and truly drunk, to quote his uncle Benjamin. There you go. Uh, so yeah, that's that's gonna be a fun party for sure. We should have a few drinks before we get to that John chapter, huh? Just just to get into John's headspace, absolutely. Absolutely. So thanks everyone for listening and we will see you guys next week. Happy trails.
Something on the Podcast podcast is written and recorded by Brendan B. Fish and Port Quentin. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called A One Last Goodbye. Thank you all for listening, and see you all next time.